0: I'd like us to imagine a four story ivy brick mansion in the heart of London, England. Since the seventeen hundreds, one family operating a global business enterprise has occupied this mansion for generations. Currently, the oldest daughter left home in her late twenties on a quest to find herself, and she now lives in a yurt in Costa Rica has nothing to do with their family or their filthy capitalist mansion. In stark contrast, her two younger brothers continue to live uh, contentedly in the family mansion. The oldest is thankful to occupy such a luxurious and prestigious home, but he really pays little attention to it. He's busy about getting into the family business, and for him it's just a roof over his head. He likes it, he appreciates it, but he... Doesn't really think a lot about it. He's got other things to do. It's, after all, just a house. No less ambitious in business, his younger brother loves every aspect of the mansion's architectural design, its exquisite decor, its intriguing history, its global influence. And he can walk visitors around into every room and down every hall and he can point out the history behind its structure. He can point to its portraits and paintings and describe them. Its priceless books on antique shelves and its keepsakes acquired from famous people around the world. This piece over here. This was a gift to my great-great-grandfather Robert from the King of France. In this volume here, this records our family history during the 19th century and our philanthropic work and expansion of our global enterprise in the Far East. It kind of documents and details these things. I could talk to you about it all day. And that portrait that you see there hanging next to that window, that is my parental grandparents who were influential in expanding our holdings in the global South. He could pick out anything in the house. He could tell you its history and its connectedness to all that this family is and all that this family has been through the years. Three siblings. Now I wonder if, if we took that family, that heritage, that historical enterprise, and we used it as an illustration of the people of God, and an illustration of salvation history, which of the three siblings would describe your level of interest in the story of redemption? We take the oldest daughter, and she might picture an unbeliever. She really doesn't care. There's no interest in the mansion, no interest in the family, no interest in redemption history. What's that? I don't care. But we could take the two brothers... And say that the first is like a believer, but mostly focused on his own story. How the mansion serves him personally. It's a roof over his head. And he can tell you how he gets along every day there. But he really doesn't care about all the details of the house. Or would you be more like that third sibling? With a far deeper sense of the rootedness and purpose of salvation history, a deeper devotion then that develops from that a devotion to our home as the household of God and to our family. I think in a manner of speaking, Romans chapters nine through eleven are written for Christians who relate to the history of salvation like that third sibling, a strong interest in the story of redemption. Or, I think we could even say that Romans 9-11 through is written to stimulate that kind of interest in the history of redemption. And I don't find this a marginal conversation. This is real stuff in the trenches of life. This week, a church member on her deathbed asked me to speak words that would help prepare her heart to meet the Lord, probably within days. What do you say? Speak words that will help you meet the Lord. In the providence of God on the way to hospice, I was thinking about what I could say, and it paralleled exactly that request. And I started in eternity past. And told her the story. Step by step through the redemptive plan of God. And it was sweet. She studied every word it seemed. Grasping on to that redemption. It was like walking through that mansion. And remembering the history and pointing out the pieces and talking about every aspect of it and say, this is what we cling to. Romans chapters 9 through 11 is that kind of discussion. And for the Christian content to simply have a gospel roof over his or her head, these chapters might bore you to the core. Maybe like the first brother would be bored by a lecture on keepsakes in the mansion's library. Yeah, I see these things, I just really don't care to know the story about them. I hope that's not us as we think about what God has done through the ages and as we come to Romans 9-11, through it may not seem to change tomorrow for us. But let's come like that third sibling and let's think about it in its details. These chapters are indeed the roots of everything. They contain the deeper aspects of the story that saves. And the more that we know these realities, the better equipped we are to live. And thus, the better equipped we are to die. We should trust the Holy Spirit. When we come now to Romans chapter 11, we should trust the Holy Spirit that these truths are vital to our identity as God's people and thus to the stability of our souls. The way that God has worked out redemption history and where we stand right now in the history of redemption is vital to who we are, to our identity, to our rootedness in this salvation plan. I would never say that the nuances of these chapters must be understood in order to be saved. But I think for those who are saved, who know Christ as Savior, these should be an increasing message of trust and confidence as we consider what our sovereign God has done, not just in my life, And we rejoice in that, and we should. We sing about it, and we should. My individual experience of trust in Christ as Savior, it's absolutely vital. We will emphasize it by God's grace tonight as eight people, Lord willing, give their testimony of faith and say, here's what happened to me. We rejoice in that. But we don't want to stay just there this person's experience, this person's experience. We all come through the same narrow gate and praise God. But we want to deepen our roots in knowing what God is up to in this global enterprise of salvation, this history-changing work of the Spirit of God. So this may come across in some sense as boring to some. But I pray that we would deepen and grow to perceive, first of all, what we find here in Romans 11 and verse 11, as we catch the two verses we just ended on, just introduced last week, we come back to them today and see this proposition about salvation history. God is using Israel's hardness to the gospel to open a new era of opportunity to save Gentiles until he restores Israel in the end. That's the stuff, that's the roots of the story that, to which we cling. That proposition is stated in verse 11 of Romans 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God prepared His chosen people for Messiah... There are 2,000 years of prophecy and when Messiah finally came, we would expect Israel to embrace Him by faith and the nations to rage in bitter jealousy against Israel. But that's not what we find. With great sorrow and unceasing anguish, 9-2, Paul admits that Israel has rejected her Messiah. The angels that came the songs that they, that they sung or, or the announcement that they pronounced. The shepherds going into Bethlehem. It didn't turn out the way you'd think. Receive her Messiah. Israel crucified him. Apart from a small remnant of believers such as Paul himself, the Jews stumbled over Jesus and hardened their hearts to the gospel. The question then is, should we conclude that Israel is done? That God is finished with this nation? And that's the idea here of verse 11 where it says, Did they stumble? That is, they stumbled over Christ as the rock of salvation. Indeed they did but did they stumble so as to fall? That is, to be permanently eliminated from God's salvation plan. What is his answer? By no means. That's not how we should interpret salvation history. Rather, there in the middle of verse 11, through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles. As we've noted repeatedly through these chapters, God's promise to Abram, that I will make you a great nation, and bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 says this was a statement of the Gospel. They will be blessed Through Israel's Messiah, through the coming of Jesus. The Gentile blessing aspect from this point forward, 2000 some years BC, it lay dormant, did it not? I mean, just think what do you know about the Gentile response to Messiah? What do you know about the Gentile response? In blessing through the people of Abraham, and we, we again, we think of Egypt, and we think of Assyria, and Babylon, and Greece, and Rome. weren't Gentiles flocking to Israel to get into the work of God and grab onto His salvation plan? That's not how they responded. They just wanted crushes, or they just wanted their land. They loved that land bridge and all that it produced, and how it allowed armies to move up and down the coast. That's what they thought about Israel. Israel's God, who cares? we got our own gods. So where God promises this, through you all families of the earth will be blessed, there's not much happening for a very, very long time. There's a few Gentiles who joined Israel, but for the most part, Gentiles, Israel's got their religion, we've got our religion, all we want is Israel's land. But now that Messiah has come, we are in a stunning era of salvation history. Gentiles are responding to the gospel across the face of the earth. And generation after generation, they are embracing Israel's Messiah as Savior. It's an amazing development. I mentioned last week by way of illustration, it's like... A woman is in a burning building trying to get out and there's this massive man that's in front of her running and they're both trying to get out of this burning building and his big body blocks a doorway out that she doesn't see. But when he stumbles, she catches a glimpse of that door and runs out through the door. In a sense... That illustrates who we are as Gentiles. Through the stumbling of Israel, we have broken into the light of the gospel. And it's only through the stumbling of Israel that this can happen. Paul is revealing here. So at the end of verse 11, it is to make Israel jealous. Maybe thirdly, we could say. He's not rejected as people, number one. Secondly, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles as they have stumbled. Israel uh, Gentiles have come to the Messiah, and then thirdly, this is to make Israel jealous. We we could picture this just on, in simple terms. I, mean, it, it, I, I don't think I don't know how to illustrate it in a way that's fully accurate, but in simple terms, I think we can get to the heart of it. We just take Jim and Joe; they're two schoolmates and they hate each other. They're fighting all the time. The teachers are tearing their hair out. Joe has no father. Jim has a faithful and loving father. Jim and his dad go fishing in a river that flows along the property line, and Joe has no idea what fishing even means, and he just hates the kid, his schoolmate, for talking about it. And why would you do that with your dad? And what he pulling fish out of a river, whatever that's about. He doesn't. He's that nobody's taught him about fishing. Doesn't know anything about it. All he does is despise Jim and everything he does. Well, some bad times come between Jim and his father. And they're just young boys. But his, his dad is working with Jim, and he, he doesn't want to press him here to go fishing with him. But he knows that it would be a good time to go fishing. And he says, hey, let's go fishing today. And Jim's nasty with his dad and says, I don't want to go. I'm not going with you. And Joe happens to be walking right by at that very time and he hears this conversation and Dad wisely knows what he's doing here. He's this smart man and he just plays with it a little bit and he says, hey Joe, you want to go fishing with me? And Jim stands back and he's watching this and he goes fishing with his dad. This kid's got nothing to do with his dad. What on earth is happening here? And off they go. Well, Jim, do you want to come? No. I said I'm not going, and I'm not going. And Joe and Dad walk down to the end of the property toward the fishing hole on the river. And what's Jim thinking? He's jealous. Just, just in, a, in a mundane, simple sense, there's a little bit of what that father's doing here. We're In a noble, global sense, is what God is doing with us here today. We are, in a sense, making Israel jealous. We got no place following God as our Father, it wouldn't seem, as we look at it historically. But God is using the tripping and the stumbling of Israel to bring massive numbers of Gentiles to the Gospel, and we're walking in fellowship with Israel's Messiah. It's a stunning turn of events in the history of the, of, of, in the message of it. In verses 12-16, through 16, then Paul develops and expands on this thesis sentence in verse 11. These three themes will run like threads through these verses. You can pick them up as we consider them. Verse 12, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, I think that's saying the same thing twice, that is, the the failure of Israel to embrace her Messiah, means that the Gentiles respond to Messiah and are saved, how much more will their full inclusion mean? That is, how much more then will it mean when Israel comes to embrace Messiah? There's kind of a subtle hint here to what is to come in the future. Their trespass, their failure, Israel's rejection, riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles, salvation in Christ... But what's this full inclusion? Israelite believers in Christ are a small remnant in God's chosen nation, but a day is coming when that remnant will become full. We don't know exactly how that will look. We don't know precisely what that means. But in the future, Israel as an ethnic people will respond enthusiastically to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, crudely so, but in a sense like Jim standing there and watching Joe and his dad go down to the fishing hole, Israel's one day going to start sprinting toward Messiah and say, deal me in. I want to be part of this. Some interpreters would argue that that happened during Paul's day, but I think that's an interpretation that's resting on a theological agenda from outside the text. Not at all what Paul is saying here. Taking it naturally, their trespass, their failure, has meant salvation to the Gentiles, but there will be a full inclusion in the future. I think that's the straightforward statement of what he's what he means here. Paul now addresses um, us as Gentiles in verse thirteen. Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. There's really no other way to take that than straightforwardly with what he is saying is my mission as an apostle, in part, is to make Israel jealous. To make her want to go sprinting toward that fishing hole and join dad, so to speak. Paul himself is a Jew. We've discussed that, 9, 1 to 5, chapter 11, verse 1. Paul was also called by God then as a Jew to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And as an apostle, an authorized messenger of Christ, Paul could attest that far more Gentiles were responding to the gospel than Jews. And Paul, what does he do? Does he make apologies here? Not at all. I magnify my office. I am in the midst of an amazing stretch of salvation history. I'm filled with anguish for the way that Israel is rejecting the gospel, but I make no apologies for taking it to the Gentiles. That's what God is doing, and that's what I'm doing. To take the light of salvation to the Gentiles, and they are responding, but thereby to make Israel jealous. Thereby to show to Israel the glories of Messiah, and to seek to entice her to come back. And she will, is what Paul is saying. She will. He saw his mission as operating with God's purpose to provoke Israel to jealousy. He was joining that mission. Verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Their rejection probably means God's current rejection of Israel because she has rejected Messiah. It could be her rejection of the gospel, certainly. But I think in the context of the hardening of Israel, it's probably talking about God's rejection temporarily of Israel as a whole is the means of reconciliation of the world. That should make sense to us now. It results in the salvation of individual Gentiles throughout the world who respond to Christ's reconciling work. His death on the cross pays the penalty of sin such that the sinner can be reconciled to God. That message is going out throughout the world. People are hearing it. They are responding to it. So the second half there, verse 15, we see though again this subtle reference to the future. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul again hinting at that coming day when Israel will respond to the gospel, shall run after Messiah, and it will be like life from the dead. That almost always means physical resurrection in the New Testament. I think 46 out of 47 times that that phrase is used, it refers to physical resurrection. The fact that he doesn't mention resurrection here might mean that he's using this figuratively. These who are, in a sense, dead to Christ will come in response to the gospel. He may actually indicate that response in the resurrection. But that's a point we won't debate here. At any rate, after the full number of Gentiles is saved, the full number of Israelites will be saved as well. Now, let's just stop for a moment and note here that Paul's musings on the glories of a restored Israel are intended to get Gentile readers to consider the nature of our standing and of Israel's standing in salvation history. It, to use the illustration, we look at this portrait in the mansion and we're studying it, knowing those people on that picture influences how we see ourselves right now. And that's, what he, that's the effect he wants upon us as a church of Gentiles. It's to recognize who we are and how we fit in this story. An amazing window of opportunity has been opened for us Gentiles due to Israel's rejection of, Of Messiah. How's that hit you? Like the woman in that burning building, we saw the light because the man stumbled. Don't think she comes running out the door with her arms up, shouting how great she is for having seen the door. She just gets out there gasping for clear air, thankful to be alive. Think about how the Romans would have responded had Israel received Jesus as Messiah. How do you think that would have ended? Call in the troops. We need to crush this rebellion. Put it down for good. That would have been the response. What was the response? The man with a sword, sitting in his home as a God-fearer, a Roman centurion, hears the gospel of grace and peace and it's born again. That's the window that opened because of Israel's rejection of the gospel. That Roman centurion stands for us in a sense and it's as if Joe and dad are walking down to the river to fish and Israel is standing by in jealousy, rejection and bitterness. But in the amazing plan of God, the jealousy is working in the other direction now. The Gentiles would have been jealous had Israel responded to her Messiah, but now it's going the other direction where Israel is jealous because we've responded to Messiah. Paul turns now to an analogy to help press this forward in verse 16. If the dough offered as fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. I wish he would... Stop and give us a little explanation of what he's actually saying here. It's a little challenging. But he doesn't really explain the analogy. What is the dough? What are the first fruits? We know generally, You look at the background of the Old Testament. Israel's ceremonial system, dough, was offered as a first fruits offering. A sacrifice to God that anticipated and dedicated the fuller harvest that was to come. The first fruits, the, possibly the remnant of Israel, particularly the patriarchs and God's promises to them. That's the dough that points to the first, the first fruits offering that points to the full harvest. Or that's the root that is holy. So then are the branches. The promises God made to Israel dictate that God is not finished with the nation as his people. In the New Covenant era, only a small remnant trusts Christ as Savior, but there is a harvest to come. The promises to Abraham assure us that God will save Israel in the end, despite her current persistence of rejection of the gospel. This leads then, secondly, to this idea. Seeing this reality, seeing what God is doing, Israel's hardened opening the door for the Gentiles to respond to the gospel, one day Israel, sprinting to the Father, sprinting to Messiah and coming in the end to full salvation, seeing this reality, Gentile believers should never gloat over Israel as if they had lost their status as his people. Again, this isn't something that troubles us, but maybe we should think about it. Maybe we should be schooled in it a little bit more than we are. And maybe just not thinking about Israel in redemptive history is part of that arrogance that we have as Gentiles. Israel's rejected Messiah, end of discussion. We have embraced Messiah. Aren't we wonderful? Don't think like that, says Paul. Concerning the attitude of Gentile believers, verses 17 and following, he says, but if if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. How many of us graft in branches? to an olive tree. Well, who's got an olive tree in Minnesota? So, little help here. The picture of, of grafting in a branch into a tree. You can skin the root, the main trunk, and if the slice is precise and sharp, you can put this piece onto it and graft it in. He's saying that you Gentiles are like a uncultivated, wild olive tree. And you've been grafted into the plan of salvation. You've been connected to the patriarchs and God's promises to them. That that wasn't where you found yourself, but you've been grafted in this way. Take another picture on it that might just see how that is done in varying uh, uh, applications. And then uh, a real olive tree being... um, those branches cut off, growing aged, maybe not producing the fruit that the um, one tending the garden would like, and so they're cut off, and these branches are grafted on again, We can see kind of the the sense of grafting there, putting the the moist sap laden branch cutting it open, splaying it open, and splaying the tree open, that these two can be grafted and merged together. And this actually works. They don't do this to waste time. They are hoping that these new branches will grow and produce olives on this tree. So he's just just taking this kind of picture. The tree being God's plan and provision of salvation. The branches here being those who gain life from that branch says some of the branches were broken off here, verses seventeen. verse 17. Uh, that is the Jews who rejected the gospel. A wild olive shoot, what's that? That's us as Gentiles being grafted onto that tree. The wild olive trees were notoriously unfruitful. Cultivated olive trees were the most popular fruit tree in the Middle East. So the picture here is God's call upon Abraham... His promise to bless the nations through Abraham, that's the root and the tree. And His promises to the patriarchs. Remember, Messiah, it's not a mistake that Matthew starts with a genealogy. Prophecy has been pointing us to this root, this sustaining salvation root through God's chosen people to Messiah. You have been grafted into that root. The nourishing root of the olive tree, a reference to the spiritual life that results from union with Christ. If we grasp what Paul is saying, we will not be arrogant then against Israelites. This is not a, this is not a rebuke against anti-Semitic thought, something like that. This is saying, don't misread salvation history. The fact that you, as a Gentile, are part of God's people, don't misread that like God doesn't care about Israel anymore. All those promises, all those prophecies, all that work of God in salvation history, He's just done with them. Don't think like that. The truth is that Gentile believers are supported by God's promises to Abraham his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with David, we are rooted in that stream of salvation history. So, again, the pictures fail, but just to give a sense of the attitude, if you are in a track meet, and you are running to qualify for the Olympics, and you're giving it your best, but it doesn't look like you're going to qualify, and at the last minute, the guy leading the race trips and falls and because of that trip you qualify for the olympics you ran hard god's smile was upon you and you made it in but you made it in because this one runner tripped i mean does that runner get to the interview following the race and boast that he's the greatest runner in the world Boasts about how wonderful he is. I mean, if you've heard particularly male track stars, they kind of do talk like that. <laughs> I'm the best thing in the world. Do you talk? No. You, you like you kind of hang your head and say, "I'm so thrilled to be going to the Olympics," but you know, I I ran, I was here, but. Um, really unfortunate that that other runner stumbled, but here I am. In a sense of Paul saying, that's the attitude we need to take here. Addresses Gentiles who harbored, undoubtedly in that context, a dismissive attitude toward Jews, perhaps even some hostility for Israel's bitter rejection of Christ. Paul anticipates in verse 19 an objection then from his Gentile readers. And this objection indicates he's dealing with some real issues here in the church at Rome. Notice at verse 19. You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true enough. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Let me paraphrase that you're right you have been grafted into the salvation purposes of god that's only because israel did not believe you stand by faith in christ not by works not by your nationality not by who you are you're saved as chapter 10 says because you've called on the name of the lord in repentant faith so don't think of yourself as anything in this Rather, fear, what does he mean there? Have a fear, a reverent fear, a humble thanksgiving to God for His grace. As we walk into the assembly on the Lord's day, this is the spirit we should bring. I'm not supposed to be here on a thousand levels. But as we come in and, and, and sing of that, we sang today of the forgiveness of my sins. We look at that individually and say, I'm not supposed to be here. I should be under the judgment of God, but in His mercy He has saved me. But let's deepen that thought to we aren't supposed to be here. This goes against any expectation that we would have. But here we are. Because Israel has stumbled, we walk into this assembly on the Lord's day. And that realization should thrill us. That's the difference between coming into the mansion and just finding a place to sleep before you take off the next morning and coming into the mansion and just saying, here I am. I'm in the midst of all of this history. I'm in the midst of this grace and this mercy. We come in on the Lord's day as Gentiles. We're not supposed to be here. Fear, says Paul, fear. Come with reverent fear before the Lord. This gathering is grace. This is just pure grace. Verse 21. For God, now remember, think this one. You should fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. Israel is hardened. They have rejected the gospel. But God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And he's, he's not talking here with horticultural precision. And he's not talking here about something like the loss of salvation or something along those lines. We don't want to fill in more blanks than we should. But what he is saying simply is there is no place for arrogance in salvation. And I think we should say this just among Gentiles. It makes me cringe, but we hear this once in a while among Christian believers as they talk about unbelievers as those idiots, those terrible people who don't understand how broken they are and how fallen they are, yet they they don't. They're blind to it. We shouldn't ridicule. We should say, why me? Why am I here? I was as blind as they were. And I did nothing to earn my salvation. It's a grace of God alone. I come to every moment of my life in that spirit. I should with humility. But we should also apply that as we think on Israel. Not to be arrogant in any way. There is no place in salvation history for arrogance from anyone. Not for Israel. Deuteronomy 7. God loved them because he loved them. Not for Gentiles, God chose us as his own because he decided to do so. He opened our eyes to the truth that we would see the gospel and embrace it. That's just grace. So salvation, he is saying here to Gentile believers, is never earned by nationality. Not for Jews in the past, not for Gentiles now. No one is severed from God's salvation plan because they are a Jew. Or because they're a Gentile, as such, people are severed, they're lost for eternity because they fail to trust Christ as Savior. So God's severity to the lost who fall, God's kindness toward his chosen people, the elect to salvation. If anyone brings if anyone fails to abide in Christ and fails to walk in characteristic faith, that's what he's talking about there. In verse 22, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Again, he's not talking about losing one's salvation. That's overreading the analogy. But saying that one has never gained salvation. Paul just sticks with the metaphor. Again, it's not looking at horticultural precision here. I mean, you can't cut something off and 2,000 years later graft it on. It's not that. It's, not what he, it's pressing the analogy too far. He's just saying, don't be proud, rejoice. And then concerning the prospect of Israelite believers, verses 23 and 24. We'll hustle through this. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, yet you Gentiles were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I am not. I didn't count precisely, but I think this is the third time now that he has in a sense, subtly pointed forward to what is going to come. And he'll make that more explicit as we come to the end of the chapter. But it's more than hypothetical reasoning. Paul's setting us up for what will indeed take place one day in the future. After a long season of Gentile response, that's where we are now, as we look across the face of the earth, how many Jews are responding to the gospel? Precious few. But we see people responding to the gospel. Gentiles responding to Israel's Messiah. Gentiles being grafted into the promises to Abraham and David and the like. And being saved. We see that throughout the world. After that long season, Israel will be grafted back into the tree of God's saving grace. So they have stumbled due to unbelief. But all that they must do is believe. All that Jim must do is run after dad and Joe and catch up. And he will. If if you were cut from what is, verse 24, by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Under the Old Covenant, it was rare to find Gentiles willing to become Jews to gain salvation. But under the New Covenant, it is rare to find Jews willing to trust Jesus as Messiah in order to identify with God's saving plan. But in the end, this will all be wrapped up, and the fullness of the elect will come in, among Jews and Gentiles into God's saving plan as it comes to fullness. Well, where are you as you look at the mansion of salvation? There's a lot of intricacies here and things we don't think about maybe very often and need to. But as we seek to learn these intricacies of God's salvation plan, let me ask some questions. How well do we curate? How well do we know This work of salvation. Are there two peoples of God, an eliminated people chosen by God in the Old Testament, but a new people of God in the New Testament? Are there two ways of salvation, an obsolete way functional in the Old Testament, and now a different way of salvation in the New Testament? Has the church replaced Israel or become the new Israel? How do we answer these questions? What do we think about them? Do we think about these questions? This passage informs our answers to these questions. In fact, it stimulates us to ask these very questions. They are vital answers. Let's just say, and I will admit that there's debate so I, don't, I speak with respect for those that would disagree. But as we think through these matters, I mean, in a mansion, curators might disagree about the meaning of a picture or something of the like. That will be the case. But as we bend toward it, if I've defended my interpretation here appropriately, I think that we would say there's only one people of God. There's only one true people of God. God did not cut down an olive tree and plant a new olive tree. A second one, when he sent Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins. No, that Messiah was a child of Abraham. And that one work of salvation is in place. There's one tree. There's only one olive tree, only one life-giving plan. God continued to fine-tune that plan through the ages. Like an ophthalmologist's series of lenses, each additional revelation had to be seen through the preceding revelations. He didn't smash all the lenses and start over. God's salvation plan has always incorporated Jews and Gentiles Much has indeed changed since Jesus came in the new era of salvation as he came, as he died, as he rose from the dead and ascended into the Father's presence. The old covenant was fulfilled. The new covenant was inaugurated by Christ. But in Christ, Gentiles have been grafted into the one tree of salvation among the remnant of Jewish believers. As it says that among them, that's what it means. So the root is the patriarchs, the covenants of promise, and our salvation in Jesus is directly rooted to that life flow from the roots that God established when he called Abraham. Secondly, the fact that the church includes Jews and Gentiles in one body grafted to one life-giving tree of salvation does not mean that we lose our national identity. The fact that I join a church in China does not mean that I have thereby become Chinese. The church has not replaced Israel as if Israel had no place. I think it would be right for us then to say, not that the church is new Israel, But I think we can say that the church is true Israel if understood in the right sense. In one sense of the word, we can say that that the church is true Israel. We cannot say that it is a new Israel. There is a remnant that is coming to Christ among Israelite believers. And there is a future that will bring that to fullness. I trust this word. And I believe that what God reveals in this word has a deepening, rooting effect upon our lives and our understanding of salvation that plays out in practical ways that we can never perceive until we get there. So... You may not be staying up at night worrying about why it is that you are saved as a Gentile, but I hope that as we consider these truths and as we submit to them and submit to what God has revealed, that we recognize that this gathering, every time we come together, is a stunning reality of what God has done and is doing and will bring to conclusion. We are not an afterthought. This plan has been going on from eternity past, and it will go on through all of eternity. And if you have been grafted into that root, if you have vital life in Christ, that is a mercy that should fill your life with a spirit of humility. And that is a confidence that we have for all eternity in Christ. This is why we sing. This is why we rejoice. Lord, we thank you for your many, many mercies. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It is a mercy to live. For those in Christ, it is a mercy to die. And we praise you for that mercy we thank You for what Christ has done. And we pray in behalf of those who are not grafted on to the root. Not grafted on to the, the tree of salvation. I pray, God, that You'd draw them to that light today. That You'd break through the stony, cold heart. That You'd break down the rebellion. And that they would run to Christ the Savior. And for Israel... We rejoice to think of what will come when they will be literally life from the dead or at least in some figurative sense, life from the dead. We long for that day. Bring it. But Lord, now may we be faithful to proclaim this gospel and rejoice in its effects in our life. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.